give him a warm welcome as he comes on up. And, um, and I want to say, um, I just want to pray for him. I want to pray for him as we begin. Pray for him. Pray for us to receive the word. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much. Thank you for your word and thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace um, that we wouldn't know of without your word and that we wouldn't know of without Jesus. We love you. We thank you so much. I pray that you would speak through uh, my brother Tim today as he shares your word. Prepare our hearts to hear. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply um, the gospel to our lives. And pray you bless him as he preaches as well. And we ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is really good to be back here with you guys. And uh, yeah, like Kenny said, I uh, spent a lot of time at Kaleo Church uh, back, uh, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and uh, just have so many great relationships and friendships and so thankful uh, just to see what God is continuing to do uh, here. So really, really glad to be here. Um, All of us Basically, all of us, whether we know it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, all of us have a vision of the good life. Something that we define as like, this is what it looks like to be successful. This is what it looks like to, to flourish. This is, this, is what, this is what I'm aspiring to. Sometimes we don't articulate it. Sometimes we might not even have it consciously like identified. But there is some vision deep within of the good life that each one of us have. It, it's how you know if a day has been successful or not. It's how you know if a year has been a good year or a bad year. I mean, how, it's the metric that you judge all those things on. You might not even know what it is, but you've all said that was a really good year or that was a bad year. That, that metric that helped you decide that, that's a vision of the good life. In fact, this vision of the good life actually guides and propels every single little decision we make throughout the day. Now, that means that, that it's pretty important that we figure out what the good life is, right? I, I want to ask you a few questions that will help you kind of think through maybe some of the, the aspects of the good life that you may have in your mind, some, something to kind of bring it out a little bit, maybe a few questions. What, what are you looking forward to? What, what do you daydream about? What are your if-onlys? Like, think about if-onlys. If only this, then everything would be okay. If, if only I had a better job. If only I could afford a house. If only I could get married. If only I could have kids. If only my kids would actually listen to me. If only my kids loved Jesus. If only, what, what are your if-onlys? The, the things that, that you just look at and you say, man, this is what I need and it's going to be okay. What is there that you couldn't imagine life without? If this wasn't a part of your life, you, you wouldn't even know what, what the meaning or purpose of life was. If, if, I didn't, if something happened to one of my kids, if something happened to one of my family, you know, someone, my, my spouse, if, if I lost my job, if I lost my career, if I lost my mind, what, what is it that you can't or couldn't imagine having to live without? Questions like this help us get a better understanding of what we believe and how we're defining the good life. And remember what I said, your vision, whatever it is, it doesn't matter whether you can articulate it or not. You have it, and it propels, and it guides every little decision 
you make. In fact, we're going to find out today that our vision of the good life actually has a, a radical impact on how we view God. So what that means is, I hope you're seeing it, it's important that we have the right vision of the good life, the right definition, that we rightly understand exactly what it is. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Psalm 73, because Psalm 73 is a wisdom psalm, and one of the purposes of this wisdom psalm, you did a lament last week, it sounds like, this is a wisdom psalm, and one of its purposes is to help define the good life. That's what the psalmist is trying to do here. So he begins in verse 1, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Basically, the psalmist begins by something that's been ingrained in his head since he was a little kid. You you know how some churches are like, God is good, and then you're supposed to say all the time, and it's like they just do that uh, on a regular basis. That's what this guy's synagogue did all his life. So he knew that the, the, the one core thing that I have to start my whole psalm out is God is good. I don't know a lot. I don't know everything. But this I know. God is good. He's good to the pure in heart. He's good to his people. He's good all the time. I know this. And so he starts out with that. He's like, I'm going to start out with what I know to be true. But all of a sudden, he gets one line into this psalm, and he runs into a problem. One line in, and he's already got a problem. And here's his problem. If God is really good to his people, then why aren't I living the good life? If God is really good, then why is my life so hard? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever asked that question? If God is good, why why'd my parents get a divorce? If God is good, why are my children rebelling? If God is good, how come I can't afford to pay the bills? How come I have this anxiety that overcomes me whenever I go out in public? If God is good, why are my parents getting sick? Why are my children struggling? If God is good, why am I so lonely? Why am I so depressed? Why is everything so hard? Why can't anything just go normal? If God is good, where is he? Why do you let that happen to me? He can't He can't get past that. And then what makes it worse is he looks around and he realizes, you know what? There are people out there living the good life. There's a lot of people out there living the good life. And the closer he looks at them, the more he realizes all those people living the good life, they're wicked. They don't love God. They don't follow him. They could care less. So so, so wait a minute. God is good to his people, but when I look out to see who's got the good life, it's all of the people that could care less about God. Look at that's what he's saying in verse 2 through 4. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Because here's the thing. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies, they're fat and sleek. He goes on this tirade for like nine verses. And then he concludes in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. 
Do you want to know how you're defining the good life? There's an easy way to figure it out. If you want to know how you're defining the good life, all you have to do is look at what it is that you envy. What do you envy? We can tell right off the bat how this psalmist defines the good life. For him, the good life is a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life of wealth, and a life of prosperity. That is how he's defining the good life. He makes it really clear by showing us who it is that he envies. He's basically saying, God is good to his people. I've been told that by my parents since I was a kid, but I'm looking around and that's not what I'm seeing. Because I'm seeing that the wicked have the good life, and I don't. You see, here's the thing. I want, I want you to understand this. The psalmist, don't get this idea that the psalmist is consumed with wealth and comfort. This psalm is about way more than that. Here's the thing. The psalmist's biggest struggle is not that he's not wealthy or comfortable. His biggest struggle at this point is he no longer believes that God is good. You see, that's what he, he, he's not saying, I wish I had more money or more comfort. He's saying, I wish I could believe God was good. Good to his people. That's what I want to believe. That's what my heart is struggling with the most. Look at verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocent. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, here's the thing. The psalmist cannot bring himself to believe that God is good because he does not believe that he is living the good life. We're going to come back to that in a minute. I want to show you his logic. Here's his logic. Watch it play out. God is good to his people, to the pure in heart. So I'm going to keep my heart pure. If I keep my heart pure, God will be good to me. If God is good to me, God will give me the good life. But God hasn't given me the good. The good life is a life, then remember, of wealth and prosperity and ease. But I don't have that life. The wicked have that life. Therefore, I can no longer believe that God is good to his people. All in vain have I kept my heart pure. I want you to consider for a moment, where's the flaw in that logic? I think the flaw in the logic is pretty clear. The flaw in the logic is his faulty definition of the good life. Notice the consequences of this. I want you to see the consequences of this. When you misdefine the good life, you often find yourself struggling to believe in the goodness of God. It's his misdefinition of the good life that has led him to question the goodness of God. Because here's the thing. If, if I were to ask you, if I would have stood at the door as you came in and asked you if you're living the good life, some of you may have said no. But here's the thing. You cannot believe that God is truly good if you do not believe that you are living the good life. 
Maybe you can, I'm not talking about your head, what you can like say, you know, like God is good all the time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you in your heart cannot bring yourself to really believe that God is good if you do not think that you are right now living the good life. Because you you see, if you don't think you're living the good life, whose fault is that? Who's in control of who gets the good life and who doesn't? We all know the answer to that. So if you're not living the good life, it's because God is keeping you from it. And if God is keeping you from the good life, that means he's holding out on you. And if you believe that God is holding out on you, you won't be able to trust him. That was the lie that broke this world in the first place. That's the one he snuck into Eve's head when he said, Did God really say don't eat from any of the trees in the garden? See what he's trying to do? He's trying to paint a picture of a God that withholds good from his people. He's doing the same today. Every time he gives you a faulty definition of the good life, he's trying to plant this seed that God is holding out on you. God is keeping you from the good life. If God is really good, why is our life so hard? That's where the psalmist finds himself in the first half of this psalm, the first 16 verses. Then in verse 17, all of a sudden, there's this turning point. Now, what I find so interesting and beautiful about this is the turning point, nothing changes in his circumstances. The wicked are still rich and comfortable and enjoying life, and he is still stricken and afflicted and suffering. None of that's changed. But still, he says in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Standing in the temple, the the psalmist suddenly realized something. He realized the wicked that he had been envying, they didn't have the good life. They didn't have the good life. They may be comfortable, yes. They may be rich, yes. They may live a life of ease, no pangs until death. But he realized they're on a slippery slope. Look at what he says in in verse 18 through 19. Truly, you've set them on a slippery place. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Everything they live for, everything they built their life upon, everything that they uh, think is the good life is going to be destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Here in the sanctuary, the psalmist feels like he's been kicked in the gut as he realized that he'd been envying people on their way to hell. You know what envy really is? It's kind of like envy is kind of like a desire to trade places with someone, right? Isn't that what envy is? You, 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 you wish you could just trade places. You wish you could have everything that they had. You wish you were in the position that they are in. And he just wakes up and he realizes, I've been angry that I couldn't trade places with people on their way to hell. He can't believe it. He says in verse 21 through 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at heart, 
I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You see what he's doing? He's, he's just like, I can't believe that I did that. That was, that was ignorant. That was brutish. That was beastly. That was, that was, oh, I can't believe I did that. I was so backwards. That was so wrong. The psalmist realized his envy had been born out of ignorance and it had turned him into a brute beast. Unfortunately, I've, I've seen envy do the same sort of thing in my own life. I remember maybe four or five years ago, there was a lady just traveling through town on a Friday night, and she stopped by my missional community at Friday at my house. And, uh, and so I, you know, introduced myself, got to know her, and she was uh, a part of a new church plant. I love church planting. I think it's awesome. It's exciting. We planted Cleo Church 10 years ago in El Cajon, and, uh, and we just, we love it. So I love, like, encouraging people that are doing church planting. I love coaching and just talking to them. And, and so this lady was like, ah, we just started a church plant. I was like, oh, I mean, I just, like, energy comes. I smile. I get excited. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. I can't wait to hear about it. So how long have you been going? She's like, oh, about a year. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. Now I'm trying to get a picture, you know, just see what it's like, what stage they're in, what's going on so that I can, you know, just hopefully be an encouragement to her. And, and I say, oh, how many people do you got? She's like, oh, maybe 200 and some. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I just wasn't expecting that, you know what I'm saying? So, 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 so but I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I try to be pretty quick. So, so I came up with a, a good reason for that. I was like, oh, like a reason that wouldn't make me feel terrible. And, and the, <laughs> the reason I came up with was like, oh, you must have taken like a really big group from, from, from the mother church, right? Like maybe you're like playing out of some mega church. They sent like 150 people with you. I, I mean, that, I could still be really encouraged by that. I could still really like want to keep on in this conversation. But, it, but she goes, oh, no. And I was like, yeah, so now I'm really, it's like, no, no, we started 30, 40 people. And just the people have been breaking the doors down. It's crazy. We don't know what's happening. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. That is good news. Yeah. I mean, that is awesome, right? I mean, like, it, taking 150 people from an existing church or people from the community breaking the doors down to get into a church plant, that is good. For the kingdom of God, that is great. That should have made my heart explode with happiness. It should have made me, like, just want to, to just talk to her more. But let me tell you something. Inside, when she said that, if I'm honest, I felt a little sad, and, and the truth is, all of my energy for the conversation kind of went away, and, and I, if I'm really honest, I'll tell you, I would have rather, I would have enjoyed the conversation more, I would have been more engaged, she would have told us she had 100 people in her church, and things were rough, but they were being faithful and pushing through. Now all I got to do is say that out loud, and I feel ignorant. I feel brutish. I feel, I feel like that's horrible, sad at something so good for the kingdom of God, like a pastor, like a church planner. Like what, who, what? But you see why it happened, right? You see what happened? I misdefined the good life, and for a little while, I started to believe that the good life was a fast-growing church, and as hard as we were working, that didn't seem to be happening for us, and I didn't get why. And then I looked at this lady who's just starting something, and all of a sudden they're getting it, and I'm thinking, why? 
Why do they get to good life and we don't? You see, that's what happens when you misdefine the good life. That's what happened to the psalmist. His misunderstanding of the good life led him to act in a way that was brutish and ignorant towards God. And you know what the psalmist realized? He realized he was actually no better than the wicked. His heart was embittered. It wasn't pure. He was brutish and ignorant, just like the wicked. He was no better than them. And what did that mean? That means that he, when he looked down, he saw himself on the same slippery slope that they were on. The psalmist all of a sudden realizes, I am no better than the wicked, which means my end ought to not be any different than theirs. The same slope that they were slipping on all the way down, swept utterly away by tears. That's the slope I'm on. He told us already in verse 2, right? My feet almost slipped because I was on that same slippery slope. But somehow, they didn't slip. Somehow, he didn't fall all the way into the judgment of God. And he tells us somehow because he, he looks up in verse 23 and he says, nevertheless, the nevertheless is meaning like, I don't know why it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be this way, but it is. Nevertheless, you're continually with me. You hold me by the right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterwards, you will welcome me into glory. The psalmist looks down at the precipice that he is standing on and he realizes the only reason that he hasn't fallen over the edge is because God was right by his side holding his hand. This is too much for him. He just finds himself overwhelmed with, with worship. He says, oh, Verse 25 through 26, who am I in heaven but you? There's nothing I desire on this earth beside you. My flesh, my heart, they may fail, but you, God, you are the, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then in verse 28, he kind of brings it all to conclusion. He summarizes the whole psalm, and he says it like this, but for me, for me, it's good to be near God. I like what the NASB says. It says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Do you see what's happened? The psalmist's entire perspective has changed. But what really happened was that his definition of the good life changed. That's what's happened in this psalm. He's changed his definition of the good life. At the beginning, right, was there anything on earth that he desired beside God? Seemed to be a lot of things at the beginning of the psalm that he desired beside God, right? He's, he's listing them all. Uh, at the beginning, was he concerned at all about his flesh? He seemed very concerned about his flesh. Ah, in vain, I've kept my, way, my heart pure. I've been stricken and afflicted every morning. It's been horrible. Now he's like, my heart, my flesh, they fail. That's fine. God is a straight. You see, he's, he's completely changed his tune. 
<laughs> You're like, dude, what, are you, what, there's nothing you desire beside God? You better erase that beginning part, you know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> people are going to think you got some, you're crazy. So, but he's changed his vision of the good life. It's all changed. And he says, but as for me, the nearness of God, that's the good life. That's the good life. Which, of course, raises a question. And this whole psalm raises the question. And the question is this. How can a holy God ever give a brute beast like the psalmist the good life? It makes sense that God would give the good life to the pure in heart, right? That makes sense. But it doesn't do anything to explain how God gave the good life to the psalmist who, would, who said, my heart is embittered. It's not pure. How could God possibly offer a hard-hearted, brute beast like the psalmist the good life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever done something so brutish and ignorant that you wondered how God could still love you? How, have you ever... You ever done something you never thought you'd do? And like, like you, you realize it, you like come to your senses, and it's almost like you would do anything you could to like get away from you. Like if you could get out of your skin, if you could get some distance, you would do it. And then you think about a holy God who created heavens and earth and who's perfect. And you say, how could he, if I don't want to be by myself, if I want to be away from me, if I can't stand myself after what I just did, how could a holy God be continually with me? Why would he ever give me the good life? This psalm doesn't answer that question. In fact, this psalm is meant to leave you asking that question. It's meant to leave you feeling this massive tension. How is it possible for a holy God to offer brute beasts like us the good life? That psalm, Psalm 73, leaves us asking that question. And for centuries, the people of God waited for an answer. They waited to see how God would answer this question. How would he relieve this massive tension? They waited until one day, the sanctuary of God took on flesh and came to earth. And for the first time, there was someone who lived their entire life truly pure in heart. In all of history, there's only one who's perfectly and truly pure in heart, and that was Jesus. And you know what that means? What did the pure in heart get? The pure in heart get the good life. Jesus deserved the good life. In fact, the Bible tells us 
that he'd experience the good life for all eternity. Remember, what's the good life? The nearness of God is the good life. Where has Jesus been for all eternity? John 1.18, at the side of the Father. He knew the good life. He lived the good life for all eternity. Very familiar with what it's like. But here we see the Son of God leaves his Father's side. He takes on flesh and he comes and he dwells around the wicked, surrounded by the wicked. And he looks around and he sees they seem to get away with everything. They're getting away with everything. And you know what about him, the pure in heart? He was stricken and afflicted, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Still, he never envied the wicked. He never complained to his God, and he never distrusted the goodness of his Father. Still, even though he did everything right, Jesus found himself on a slippery slope. You want to talk about a slippery slope? Why don't you talk about being hailed as the Messiah, healing people in the temple, to being five days later crucified, naked, outside the city? That's a fall, isn't it? That's a slippery slope. That's swept away utterly by tears in a moment. But that's not even the half of it. Because on the cross, Jesus found himself slipping further and further and further. Down, down, into and towards the dreaded judgment of God the skies went black he slipped he slid further and further closer and closer to the judgment of hell that all of his people deserved because of their sin and in the moment that he needed his father the most the one who had been eternally with him always by his side let go of his hand God the Father let go of his son's hand, and his son slipped all the way down into judgment. On the cross, he was swept away utterly by tears. In a moment, he experienced all the pain, all the suffering, all the loss, all the agony that his people deserved for all eternity in hell. It was from that place, forsaken by his father, that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, the tension in Psalm 73 is relieved. The innocent son of God gave up the good life so that he could offer it to brute beasts like us. There at the cross, the father let go of his only son's hand so that when our feet began to slip, he might be there to hold ours. There he forsook his son so that he could be continually with us. Jesus left the Father's side so that he could bring his people to it. So, New City, you need to know something. You need to know this. God is good to his people. God is good to his people. 
He gave his only son so that you and I might not perish, but instead might spend an eternity at his side living the good life. He's good to us. He's good to us when we deserve it and when we don't. He's good to us when we succeed and when we fail. He's good to us when people love us. He's good to us when they leave us. He's good to us when life is easy and when it's hard, when we're comfortable and when we're not. When we're sick and when we're healthy, when we're happy and when we're sad, when we're depressed or when we're filled with joy, he's with us continually. He holds us by the hand. You see, the God who did not spare his only son but freely offered him up for you and me, he is good to his people. And if you want to know what the good life is, you want to know what the good life is, the good life is to be continually with this God, this God that loved you so much. It's to know that even when your feet begin to slip, he will stand by your side and he will never let go of your hand. It's to know that as life gets confusing in the midst of the darkness, he will guide you with his counsel. And after it's all said and done, all the pain, all the heartbreak, all the tragedy, all the suffering, all... When it's all said and done, he will welcome you into glory. He will answer every question. Everything sad will become untrue. He will fix all that is broken. He will wipe away every tear. He will remove every scar. By his wounds, you will find your own can be healed. There's something crazy I love about Realizing the good life. When we rightly understand the good life, you realize you can have it right now. You know how we are with the good life, right? The good life is always around the next bend, isn't it? Isn't it? You're in high school, the good life is being in college. You're in college, the good life is graduating. You graduate, the good life is getting a good job. You get a good job, and the good life is like getting a nice apartment, finding a girlfriend or a boyfriend, getting married. You get married, and the good life is having a family. You have a family, and the good life is having a house for your family to live in. You have a house for your family to live in, and your good life is the kids doing well at school and doing well at sports, and the kids succeeding, and the kids succeed, and then the good life is you know, getting the kids out of the house and enjoying some time with, with, with your wife or your husband again. And, and after that, then the good life is retiring. And Satan's so smart, he doesn't come to like 25-year-olds getting their first job and tell them that the good life is retirement. Because that would just be overwhelming. You know what I'm saying? You're like, dude, 40 years? Come on. Like... <laughs> No, please. I don't, I don't think I can do this. I'm going to give up on the good life. I'm going to go to church and find another definition. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, but, but he doesn't do that. He tells 25-year-old kids that they can have the good life as soon as they find a spouse. But there's a lot of married people been working for 35 years that know the good life is retirement. Right? It's always, it's always one step. It's always one step. It's always one step. You know, you know one of the most dangerous things that can happen to us? 
Because you can get the good life. Sometimes Satan keeps it one step and sometimes he gives it to you. He gave it to the wicked, didn't he? He gave them the good life. And because they had the good life, they weren't looking for anything else until the day when they were swept away utterly by terrors and all their sandcastles came crashing to the ground. New City, when you misdefine the good life, there are only two options. One, you'll get it. And one day it'll all be swept away. Or two, you won't get it. And you will doubt the goodness of God. Nothing good can come from misidentifying the good life. Nothing. I remember about eight years ago, I preached this psalm for the first time at our church. And I remember the season like it was yesterday. My wife and I, we aren't able to have kids on our own. And, uh, and so we didn't, we just can't have kids. And, uh, and there was a homeless lady in, in my missional community. And she, uh, she asked us if, she told us one Friday night in, in my office, she said, you know what, uh, I was raped by my ex-boyfriend, and I just found out I'm six months pregnant, and I want to know if you and Abby will, will take the baby. So, uh, so we, we said, sure, and we began to take her to all of her doctor's appointments, and we had a baby shower, and it's kind of exciting. It's something we never knew we would ever get to experience, having a little baby in our home and holding her, and, and, and there's a little girl. Three months later, she had her, and we went to the hospital, and we picked her up. Uh, her name was Cynthia, and uh, she had, had some addictions because her mom was on drugs and things, and so... It was pretty rough the first couple of weeks. The first three weeks, she was up a lot at night, and I would—I had the night duty, so I would be up at night with her most of the night and just feeding her the bottle and trying to calm her down. And and uh, you get pretty attached when you're around a little baby that doesn't sleep, you know, because uh, you're always holding them. And we got pretty attached during those three weeks, and then out of nowhere. I get a phone call about 6 o'clock at night. It's a social worker. I said, hey. And she said, I uh, found out some stuff, she said. I said, okay. She said, uh, found out the dad, I don't think the dad really raped the mom. And, uh, and he just got a new girlfriend. And I guess his girlfriend wants the baby. So you're going to need to bring her back and give her to her dad uh, I'm going to give you an address. If you can bring her back at 10 a.m. tomorrow, that'd be sweet. I mean, we had a baby shower. We had a room set up. We had tons of stuff. People at the church, you know, went crazy and bought us all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, just pack up everything that, that you have for Cynthia and make sure you bring it and, and give it to her dad. Give her back. I remember that night. I held her almost the whole night and... I still remember in the morning, I made the last bottle for her. I gave her a last bottle. I'm a sentimental kind of person, so I, like, wash the bottle out, and it's, like, still on my shelf in my office. But uh, then we put her in the van, and, and I drove her with my wife 
toward dad's house. I held her while her dad came out and unloaded the van and all the stuff. And then finally, he was done. And uh, I kissed her on the forehead and I handed her to her dad. And, uh, and my wife and I turned around and we walked out to, uh, to the car. We got in the van and I mean, we couldn't move. We couldn't drive. We sat there and cried for a while. It's crazy. It's like uh, it's some, someone so small, right? And, and yet that van felt completely empty when she wasn't in it. And uh, the silence that you thought you'd really like just felt overwhelming. And I remember sitting there. And for some reason, I couldn't get this psalm out of my head. And so finally, I remember looking at Abby, and I took her by the hand, and I said, beautiful. She looked at me. I said, beautiful, the, the nearness of God is the good life. I said, baby, look at me. She looked at me, and I said, listen, you and me, you and me, Right here, right now, in this van, we already have the good life. We have a God who's continually with us. He's holding us by the hand. He's going to guide us through this darkness with his counsel. And someday he's going to wipe all these tears away. And he's going to make it all okay. That's a good life. God taught me that day the good life's not having a baby. The good life's not having a nice family. The good life's not a growing church. That day in that car with red eyes and a broken heart, he taught me the nearness of God, that is the good life. The good life is to know the best thing about heaven. The best thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. And in the earth, there's nothing that we need beside him. He's continually with us. He holds us by the hand. He guides us with his counsel. Afterwards, he's going to welcome us to glory. That's the good life. And one of the things that helps me think about it and put it in perspective is to remember this. The Son of God... He did not leave his father's side and take on flesh and bear the mocking and the spitting and the beating of the soldiers and the nails and then the wrath of his father. He didn't shed his blood on the cross, forsaken by his father to give me a baby. And he didn't, get it. He didn't do that to give you a house or kids that listen or a better job, or more comfortable life, or better health. He didn't die for that. That's not why he shed his blood. He shed his blood to give you the good life. And when you, when you cheapen it with things of this world, that's not what he shed his blood for. He shed his blood 
so that God could continually be with brute beasts like us. He shed his blood so that when everyone else's feet is slipping and they are being swept utterly away by tears, he's got our hand and he won't let us go. He shed our blood so in the darkness of night when you don't know which way is up and you don't know what to do next and you're confused, he will be there to guide you with his counsel. He shed his blood so that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all peace will himself come and strengthen and establish and restore you. That's why he shed his blood. So before we get any further in our lives, let's stop defining the good life from what's just around the corner. This morning, you can have that good life. Isn't that crazy? It doesn't matter how you came in or what you're going home to. You can go home with the good life. And you can keep it forever. And nothing in this world, and none of those things you're anxious about, and none of those things you're afraid of, and none of those things that you don't understand can take it away from you. New City Church, this morning, let's declare, as for us, the nearness of God, that's going to be the good life. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Dear Jesus, just ask that you would come and, and have mercy on us. Every one of us in this room, we've been ignorant. We've, we've been brute beasts. We've envied the wicked. We've defined the good life in terms of things that we could see and feel and touch. We've expended lots of energy running after it. We've shed a lot of tears when we've lost it. In fact, there's been times when we've doubted your goodness. We've doubted your goodness because you weren't giving us things that you knew death was just going to come in and steal from us in the end anyway. We've been fools. We're sorry. And it's crazy for us to wake up from our ignorance and realize, nevertheless, you're continually with us. And you've been holding our hands so that, that we didn't slip all the way down where we could have. And even this morning, you're guiding us with your counsel as you're, you're tweaking our definition of the good life. And one day, one day you're going to welcome us into your glory. So thank you, Jesus, for giving up the good life so that you could give it to brute beasts like us. We don't deserve it, but you give it to us. And so we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.